On today's episode, we will talk about the witchiest woman, the High Priestess. I have a lot to say about the archetypes and associations with this card, so let's get started. On Crystalline Knowledge Tarot, I'll share all things tarot, with a little bit of social science, a large dose of feminism, and a sprinkling of mysticism to show how tarot can be used for learning, self-development, and collective liberation. There are many perspectives on the practice of tarot and how to read and interpret the cards. This is my perspective, not the perspective, and I respect the many tarot journeys that people are on. This is how I practice and the lens I bring. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. Today's episode is all about the High Priestess, sometimes simply the Priestess, which is the third card in the Major Arcana. The High Priestess is also a magical card, much like the Magician who we covered in our last episode. However, she is on another level. She doesn't use magic, she is magic. I once heard Sarah Faith Godestiner, who can be found at Goddess, G-O-T-T-E-S-S, on Instagram. She's the owner of The Moon Studio and the host of the fantastic Moonbeaming podcast. She once described the High Priestess as beyond language, beyond these earthly elements. And the High Priestess is the priestess of the community. She uses her magic and her insight, her prophecies, in service to others, which is distinguished from the magician who used these things in service to himself or their self. She is the keeper of divine knowledge and divine secrets. Before talking about elemental and planetary associations, I want to talk about the possible origins of the High Priestess in the Tarot. In early tarot decks, the card that became known as the High Priestess appeared as the female pope. Now, some might say that this was simply like a queen to the king. She was the feminine foil of the hierophant or the pope. But she is actually based on the story of Pope Joan. Now, most modern scholars do not believe that Pope Joan actually existed, but the story is that a woman disguised herself as a man and rose through the ranks of the Catholic Church hierarchy and was crowned Pope John in the 9th century. Her legend appears in medieval texts, and there were rumors of a cult of Pope Joan, a cult of the popists. Her story was likely still a part of the collective imagination and folklore and storytelling in early Italian decks, hence her appearance. So now that we've taken a little historical detour, let's talk about associations for this card. In terms of associations, the High Priestess is associated with the element of water, and its planetary association is the moon. This is the first appearance of the element of water in the Major Arcana. And water is receptive, it's emotional, compassionate, intuitive, it's relational, but it can be a bit too impulsive and it can also be nebulous. The moon is mysterious and evocative, lighting the night sky, shaping the tides, influencing our moods. 
The moon often represents the occult and, of course, witches are said to gather under the moon to work their magic. Our keywords for the high priestess include introspection, hidden wisdom, intuition, duality, perception or perceptiveness, psychic powers, divine knowledge, or being in a state of flux or liminality. There's also an element of mystery here. The high priestess sits in front of the gate to the underworld. She's the keeper of the secrets of the underworld, and she isn't quite letting us in on all of those secrets. In terms of archetypes, I want to start with Hecate. Hecate is the goddess of witchcraft, of magic and the underworld, as well as the night, light, ghosts, necromancy, which is communicating with the dead, the moon, and the goddess and protector of the household and of passageways or entryways. So in other words, a lot. She is most frequently depicted as the triple goddess, the maiden, the mother, and the crone, representing all stages of a woman's life. Now, as patriarchy gained more and more power and its grip tightened on religious and spiritual practices, Hecate was largely banished only to the underworld, only to the shadows, but her original reach was clearly much larger. She also transformed mostly into the image of the old crone, often thought of as ugly, hideous, decrepit, witch-like, because, ladies and femmes, as you know, if you are getting old, that's gross, don't do it, and if you're not young and hot and able-bodied and white and heterosexual and thin, then just why bother? But Hecate is the goddess of witches and magic. She is the conduit between this world and the spirit world, and she occupies the liminal space between the worlds. All of this, by the way, is part of many of the depictions of the high priestess, especially in the Rider Waite Coleman Smith deck, which we will come back to later in the show. Finally, the cult of Hecate, while not exclusively women, was strongly associated with women and with witches. Another archetypal connection with this card, due to the pomegranates that you often see as part of the illustrations, is the myth of Persephone, which in some tellings is also connected to Hecate. Persephone was the beautiful young daughter of the goddess Demeter, who caught the eye of a much older and much grosser man Hades, who abducts her and takes her to the underworld and forces her to be his bride. Now her mother is distraught. She's beside herself with grief, lets all of the crops and harvest, which were her purview, go untended, leading to widespread famine. Zeus thus intervenes and tells his brother Hades that he has to let Persephone come back to the world of the living. Now, quick side note, according to legend, Zeus helped his brother kidnap Persephone by causing the ground to split. So he is partially to blame here. As Zeus always is, this guy sucked a lot. So Persephone's overjoyed 
that she's going to be able to see her mother again. But, and there are different tellings or different interpretations here. One is that she voluntarily eats a pomegranate seed offered to her by Hades, whereas others interpret the texts as Hades made her eat it. I'm inclined to believe the latter, given their relationship. And as a result of eating this single pomegranate seed, Persephone could not be united with her mother entirely. She must spend some time in the underworld and some time above ground. This becomes the story of the seasons. Persephone returns to the underworld in the winter, her mother grieves and thus the crops die, and when Persephone returns, things come into bloom. And sometimes when we pull the high priestess in a reading, we are Persephone. We must make the trip inward to our underworld to understand the secrets or the mysteries that this card denotes. Now, how does this connect to Hecate? In some retellings of the myth, Hecate hears Demeter crying out, lamenting the loss of her daughter. Hecate, incensed, runs torches ablazing through the underworld to find Persephone and bring her back to her mother. I like this version better. Hecate has long been seen as a goddess of the marginalized, of the downtrodden, of the mistreated, which makes sense. This, this association makes sense. Demeter has lost her beloved daughter to the guiles of patriarchy. And Hecate can cross over boundaries of this world and the underworld and rules these liminal spaces. So the high priestess is Hecate. She is the female pope who could communicate with the divine. She is the patron saint of witches and witchcraft, and she is a witch herself. While throughout history, many have been targeted and persecuted as witches, the archetype of the witch is a gendered one, and witches are typically depicted as women. According to patriarchal religious institutions and patriarchal cultures, witches are bad because women having power is bad because communicating with the divine outside of male-sanctioned channels is forbidden. And knowledge passed from mother to daughter to granddaughter can be dangerous. It can tell the secrets of the patriarchy. Imagine if all of our grandmothers and their grandmothers shared not only their remedies and recipes, but also their mistreatment and disparagement. Many of our cultural narratives about the quote-unquote good old days or long happy marriages, or of legends like Persephone being a willing bride, or women healers and priestesses and witches being evil, would all fall apart and they definitely don't want that. The construction of women as witches and as heretics in the case of the female pope serves to denigrate women's traditional knowledge and healing and ability to communicate with the divine. I'm thinking here of the arguments outlined in the second wave feminist classic, which is midwives and nurses, now, historically, births, abortion care, midwifery, all forms of healing 
were the domain of women in the community who had deep knowledge of herbs and treatments. But as the medical world became more professionalized, so-called male doctors, and you can look up the treatments at this point in time and even well into the 1900s, they often had no idea what they were actually doing. But the women healers became demonized, discredited witches. And this is a reaction to patriarchy not wanting to concede power to women who held generations of knowledge of healing practices. It's fears of marginalized groups holding powerful knowledge and skills that challenge the status quo and fears of changing and shifting social and cultural contexts. I've read a bit about the Salem witch trials and I'm reminded of one book, it's called A Storm of Witchcraft, I'll link it in the show notes, in which the author highlights how various social, cultural, economic, and political events of the time period combined to create the structural conditions under which the witch trials could emerge and happen. Now, these included things like a fledgling colonial governor, dissatisfaction with former ministers and the new replacement ministers, um, ongoing war and conflict with the French and various indigenous tribes in the region. And while this is not the main focus of this particular book, there's also, of course, the rigid gendered, classed, and religious structure of Puritan New England. There's also Stacey Schiff's book, The Witches, in which she combines narrative and a uh, historical fiction-ish approach with historical documents to tell the story. If I'm not mistaken, some of Schiff's historical anecdotes are not widely accepted by all scholars, but it is a great story. And an interesting point that, that Schiff brings up, which is really a nuanced look and adds another layer of gendered and classed analysis to the witch trials, is that if you look at the original accusers, remember, the accusation started small and spiraled out of control to hundreds by the end in Salem and Danvers and the surrounding towns. But most of the original accusers were poorer girls or poor girls, certainly not from wealthy and powerful families. Many were orphans from the wars and Schiff goes so far as to suggest that perhaps their behaviors were a trauma response, or in the very least, it was the only outlet for them to be seen and heard in Salem society. Now, this by no means suggests, and I'm not suggesting, that our main sympathy should not lie with those falsely accused, but Many of the original accusers were young girls, children to teenagers, who brought fantastical, unbelievable stories to adults who bought into them, and in which a rigid social structure did not allow certain people to speak or act in the public space. Given all of this context, then um, a moral panic ensues. A moral panic is a concept that describes how society gets whipped up into a frenzy about something. Witches, drugs, satanic ritual abuse scares of the 1980s, 
heavy metal and quote-unquote violent music again in the 1980s. Something was definitely going on there in terms of a return to an oppressive, puritanical-esque society. And the witch trials of Salem are a classic example of a moral panic, and they help us understand how it is that social conditions and dynamics lead to events that otherwise seem implausible and wild. Now, I did not come up with the concept of a moral panic, by the way. It comes from Good and Ben Yehuda, who are credited with coining the term. But the concept encapsulates what was going on in Salem and why witches have captivated the public imagination for centuries. A panic starts with growing concern. There are bad things happening in our community and we must put a stop to it. And as the panic grows, so does the hostility, where there's an observable increase in hostility, hatred, negative affect toward people who are associated with the panic or connected to them in some way, meaning they don't actually have to be a part of the group. They don't actually have to be witches in this case. They just have to look and or act like people who we as a society have decided are bad or deviant in some way. This is the notion of a folk devil, said to embody the fears and represent the epitome of evil within a community. This dichotomization takes place. There are the good, the moral, the non-deviants, that's the us on one hand, and the evil, vile, amoral deviants, the folk devils, the them on the other. What folk devils tend to have in common across different types of moral panics is that they are easily distinguishable from the most privileged or powerful groups in society, whether by gender, by age, race or ethnicity, religion, sexuality, or some other usually demographic characteristic. They tend to be less socially powerful and therefore less able to fight back against the dominant narrative, mischaracterization, and persecution that results from a panic. For example, in the satanic ritual abuse panic in the 1980s, most accusations arose in daycare centers. As women, especially middle-class white women, because working-class women, immigrant women, women of color, had always typically had to work outside of the home in the paid labor force. But as more privileged women were entering the workforce en masse and competing and outcompeting for men with jobs, it should not come as a surprise that daycare centers, which only exist when women are not in the home doing childcare for free, became the epicenter of the panic. Or that a lot of the original accusations centered on men who worked in childcare. This, of course, is going against social norms, which say that women are the ones who are supposed to be responsible for childcare. So the public becomes convinced that the threat is real, that something needs to be done about it, and there's this element of disproportionality where the concern is not proportional. It's an excess to the actual threat itself. And in some cases, there is literally no threat. 
There's no evidence that any of the murdered people in Salem or the surrounding towns were practicing witches. Yet, that didn't stop hundreds of accusations of witchcraft that got more involved and salacious as the story spread. Although, it should be noted that modern Salem is home to many witches, and if you're ever in the area, it's a quick drive or train ride up from Boston. It has local shops, museums, and attractions devoted to witches and to witchcraft. A quick shout out to Housewitch, one of the hippest witch stores that I have ever been in. So panics are volatile, right? They appear quickly and they dissipate just as quickly, sometimes lasting a few weeks or a few months. But the effects of the panic are long lasting in terms of social relations, in terms of policies and laws, and the cultural imagination. The events of Salem took place over a few months, yet they left an indelible mark on our cultural imagination and in many ways marked a turning point away from Puritan supremacy in early colonial North America. Now, a panic takes hold because it illuminates some fundamental aspects of social relations, some deep-seated insecurities and anxieties. In the case of witches, like our high priestess, it's fears of women and femmes being powerful, of being sexual in a manner that is for their own pleasure. It's fears of challenges to the dominant religious, medical, or scientific order, But through the centuries, the demonization of the witch archetype has led to a revival in interest in witchcraft, along with, of course, the realities of late-stage capitalism, where many of us feel we can no longer rely on these traditional structures if we could ever rely on them in the first place. And this is often a queering and a feminist reimagination of these archetypes, in a way that is empowering and celebratory and very much aligned with the High Priestess to whom we will now return. Although I am clearly Team Priestess, Team Witches, as evidenced by the already extended length of this episode, there are, as always, shadow sides to this card. The shadow energy of this card can be unstable, deceptive, or secretive. This could be an indication of you keeping secrets from yourself or from others, or that people are keeping secrets from you. Remember, the High Priestess sits in front of the veil to the other side, but she does not share this knowledge with us, listener. If we pull this card and we sense its shadow energy, either from a reversal, if you read reversals, or due to its position in the spread and or surrounding cards and or the question that was asked, it could also be about denying our own magic, our own intuition, our spirituality, or our psychic powers. We are ignoring these capabilities or casting them aside Maybe we're afraid to tap into them. Um, Let's be real. These can be scary or emotionally difficult. But we are disconnected and our link to these traits and capabilities is severed. 
And finally, this is not a shadow per se, but a word of caution. Some cards in the tarot, like the magician from last week, they are giving us a big hell yes to whatever we are asking. Not so much the high priestess. She is asking us to pause, to go inward, to tap into our intuition, to reflect on and process the mysteries, to seek guidance from spirits, from ancestors, from prayer, maybe from all of the above. Basically, hold up, wait a minute, now is not the time to ask, not enough is known. Don't fall into that shadowy, impulsive energy that can be at play with this card. All can be revealed in time, but remember, we're still really early on in the Fool's journey through the tarot. There are many pieces of information that are not yet known to us. The High Priestess will reveal them to us slowly through quiet reflection and going inward to tap into our own intuition. All right, I want to talk about the imagery of the card, and there is a lot. In the Rider-Waite-Coleman-Smith version, the High Priestess sits on a throne, and on her head is a triple moon crown representing the mother, the maiden, and the crone, and also the waxing, waning, and full moon. The priestess wears a watery blue dress representing the element of water and intuition, and she holds a Torah, spelled T-O-R-A, in her hands, representing spiritual knowledge. She sits between two pillars, one black with a B on it and the other one gray with a J on it, and these are the supposed pillars of Solomon's temple, the first temple of Jerusalem. And behind her is a curtain of pomegranates, and behind which is the unknown. Presumably the underworld if we keep with Hecate and Persephone archetypes and imagery in the card. And at her feet is a large crescent moon representing, again, intuition. And there's another version of the card that I really like, which is from Ethereal Vision's Illuminated Tarot. If you look up the deck online, the High Priestess is the card that adorns the box that the deck comes in. And in this version, the priestess has the triple goddess crown and holds a gold book of spiritual knowledge in her hands. She's in a light blue flowy gown with a crescent moon at the nape. And the top of the, the gown is a turtleneck covered in stars. She sits against a gold background with a circular element that I always interpret as an Ouroboros, a snake swallowing its tail, representing eternal time, the infinite cycle of nature and eternity, the unity of time. And now this version of the card does lose its association with Persephone, but is heavily Hecate-coded. I have put this card on my altar when I was trying to draw in magic and intuition. And this is a way to use the card as a part of your journey through the tarot and also your journey to tap into your own magic. I sometimes use tarot cards not only for readings, but for meditations and ruminations on ideas or behaviors or archetypes 
or use them to create a sacred space for manifesting and for magic. All right, friends, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the show. I know it was a little bit longer than usual. I'm going to try to keep all these episodes under 30 minutes. I want this series to be your go-to for learning about the key elements of the cards and maybe a little bit of additional context and give me a chance to talk through all of the ideas that I have about the tarot. You can find me at Crystalline Knowledge Tarot on Instagram. I also have a Patreon for listeners who want to support my work and get some additional perks, such as a monthly tarot spread delivered to your email. You can find the link in my Patreon in the show notes. And thanks a lot and see you next time.